My name is Rudy Kelly, and I am an herb original. I am chief. My dad was a great chief of the Simshan Nation, beloved by his people. But at home, with his family, he brought anger and pain. He told me that to succeed, I would have to leave everything behind. Now I'm on a journey to find out who and what my dad really was. The Herb Original is an all-new CBC podcast. Available now. This is a CBC podcast. Welcome to Long Pine Reserve, a fictitious place with a true story to tell. This is the Little Bird family. It's a it's a fictional family. This show is representative of so many 60s scoop stories. It's not um, any one particular person's story. I love you, you know. You do? Yeah. I still can't believe it. We have four kids. That's not enough <laughs> anymore. Um, so the Little Bird family, they're just a, a simple young family, two parents, four kids, and they live in a, in a simple res house with no electricity and no running water. Can get your brother some milk? Uh, it's the 1960s, and that was very common for many homes on reserves across Canada, and their, their story is not exceptional in, in any way. Um, they're just a, a, you know, a beautiful young indigenous family living on the prairies, just trying to get by. The Little Bird family shows us what life was like for many Indigenous people living on the Canadian prairies. That is, until a government policy left a path of destruction. The 60s scoop devastated families, communities and cultures by taking thousands of Indigenous children and adopting them out to non-Native homes. Little Bird is the first television series to show that story to the world. Dance, Anin, Bujou, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. I hope that it builds so much conscious awareness within people that it impacts the way they live their everyday life to use the memory of this family and these experiences and to understand that each person can make an impact in building a better reality for everybody. Jennifer Podemski is one of the creators behind Little Bird. The six-part series follows a young woman as she searches for her birth family and discovers the truths of her past. It's the first television series to explore the legacy of the 60s scoop. Even though the scoop displaced some 20,000 children, Many people still don't know about it. Little Bird is changing that. Today on Unreserved, the Indigenous women who created Little Bird tell us why it's a story everyone should know, and how this fictitious family can create real change for future generations. He'll come around. He's been waiting for this long time. Patty and Morris Littlebird live in a modest res home on Canada's prairies. They have four children, Bijig, Dora, Nige, and Leo. 
but by the end of this day, all but one will be scooped. And while each child goes on their own journey, this is Bijek's story. Sure. She was adopted by a Jewish family in Montreal, and her name was changed to Esther. You're not from around here, eh? No. Not really. As she is about to start a new chapter in her life, oh, Esther feels something is missing and begins to piece the truth of her past together to find her way home. Little Bird is a six-part series that premiered this past spring on Crave and APTN. The critically acclaimed drama was created by a team of Indigenous women. Producer Jennifer Podemsky is Soto, Ojibwe, and Jewish. Elamaya Tailfeathers is a Blackfoot and Sami filmmaker, actor, and producer from the Kainai First Nation. Zoe Lee Hopkins is Helstuk from Bella Bella and Mohawk from Six Nations. The pair directed the series. And Darla Contois is Cree Soto from Missapaiste Cree Nation and plays the role of Esther slash Bejig. Welcome to you all to Unreserved. Thank you for having us. Let's start with Elamaya. Uh, Elamaya, tell us about the family in the opening scene of this series. Well, that opening scene is one of my favorite scenes in the entire show. And I, I think I speak for everyone when I say that it was so important for us to show that there was love in this family and in this household, that these children were not taken because of an absence of love. And I think that is true for many 60s scoop survivors and children that were taken. Um, and so we wanted to provide audiences with a glimpse into the beauty and the joy and the love that existed in this home and the hope and the potential that existed before these children were so violently taken from their parents and their community. And one of the things that uh, I really loved about about that scene, you know, besides it, the beautiful shots of the grass and, you know, of the the clothes on the on the clothing line. It's just the familiarity, you know? The familiarity of it all um, was striking for me. Why was it important for you to include little details like where they kept the milk, for example? Jennifer. Oh, well, um, hello. Thanks for helping us. Hi. <laughs> um, I just want to also add uh, that Zoe was a writer on this as well. So uh, in the writer's room, when we started to think about especially this this family, the origin story of Esther, um, all of those details were so important for so many reasons, one being authenticity, the expression of functioning, loving, caring, nurturing families that, you know, essentially had everything intact. And, and we wanted to illustrate the very things in very directly that the social workers later identify as the things that don't exist in this home. So the fridge is in the ground in the back, you know, and they later say that they don't have a fridge. So things like that. And I think, you know, the poetry and expression of the home and and the place and the love in the family, as Maya was saying, was, was like the most important part, I think, of this whole experience was to show what was lost. Um, there is also a, a sort of a growing sense of dread. I could feel it in, in my body. I could feel it in my stomach as as the scenes went on. And you see that first cop car drive by the property. What happens to this family? Yeah, the, the kids are taken. 
the kids, the family is broken. The family is shattered by the removal of the children. And that was, uh, you know, there is a, a little bit of a story about that, that cop car scene. And I mean, that was a, a, a bunch of hard days at that house and there was just very little time, but I think it was so well executed in the end. Um, I, myself and Hannah, I remember going to the network and saying like, this is actually, um, you know, this is an act or a tease ender for episode one, even though it might not feel like it to you because maybe people who are non-Indigenous don't understand the, the weight of an RCMP car and what that represents, especially in the 1960s. But I'm telling you, this is a tease ender. Um, and it was, it was so important to capture it in a way that would take people's breath away. And I, I think Maya did a, a beautiful job in executing that moment because it is terrifying. It is beautiful and heartbreaking and terrifying. Absolutely. As we had said, this series is based on the experience many Indigenous families have, my my family included, of um, being ripped away from your community, your culture, your family. Um, Jennifer, what do we know about the families targeted by the 60s scoop? Well, essentially, I, I think one of the most important things to understand, and this is way more above my head in terms of like specific policies at the time, but we moved collectively like as a as a country from the federal kind of mandate to remove indigenous children from their homes through the residential school practices to uh provincial removal through child welfare and that was like kind of a, a handover uh we obviously did a lot of research and spoke to a lot of people about that very specific time that this was happening and this particular story does focus on one specific campaign called the AIM program, which was kind of localized to Saskatchewan and maybe Manitoba. But the program we focus on was was very special in, in, in that it was very supported and celebrated by the media, by CBC. You know, a lot of there was a, a news piece on CBC that we circulated to everybody celebrating this program called Adopt an Indian Métis at the time. And this was where they would put kids in catalogs and create, you know, newspaper ads. And that became sort of the the basis for the, t- the story we were telling. But essentially, it was mm-hmm. it was all a part of the the efforts to fracture families and communities and remove children from their families, ultimately to assimilate and to continue the the genocide on Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. What do we know about how authorities deemed parents and homes fit or unfit during that time? Um, it seems to me that it was illegal to be poor, you know, or what the government deemed as poor. You know, and there was such a disparity in terms of how people were viewed by social workers and by the province, by the country, and how people saw themselves, you know, and that was really important to us to um, show that even though people may not have had electricity, you know, or running water just because the reserve was not set up like that, um, that people didn't feel poor, you know, that they had everything they needed. They had the 
food and they hunted or gathered or, you know, they had what they needed and they had a network of people, you know, what, what you could go to your auntie's house to use the phone, for example, you know, and you, you, you had what you needed. You had supports, you had everything. And that was really important when um, Esther meets her brother Leo and shows him the paperwork that um, was used against their family that said, you know, they don't have a fridge, they don't have electricity, they don't have running water, they don't have these things, they were poor. And her brother is adamant and outraged. And he says, we weren't poor, we had everything we needed. And that was something that we heard when we were researching the story, when we went to Jennifer's uh, home community of Muscopeding and listened to her family talk about um, about that exactly, you know, about having everything, you know, and yet the outside world would say that we had nothing, you know, and therefore you didn't deserve to keep your children. Mm-hmm. Um, you had Esther's character um, adopted out to a, a Jewish couple in Montreal. Uh, Zoe, what did you learn about Indigenous children growing up in Montreal in the 60s and 70s? I had no idea about this specific aspect of the story, that Jewish families in Montreal specifically were were um, targeted with this advertising campaign. And I didn't know that there were catalogs of our children that existed. And I didn't know that we were advertising the newspaper. And that really was really horrifying to me to know that uh, you could, you know, essentially sell a child like a puppy, you know, in in a paper. It was really, really, um, it made me cry to think about that. And just to know that these catalogs were floated around this affluent community in a specific place in the country was really, really um, eye-opening to me. I had no idea. And how that happened, I'm not sure if it was a specific adoption agency or something within this within this community in Montreal or why it was specifically Montreal and Jewish and affluent. I have no idea. But that was, there was a number of people who grew up in the same circumstances as Esther. And one of our story advisors um, was one person like that who was adopted out and raised in a Jewish affluent family in Montreal. Um, So that specificity we researched and had a connection to on our team. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. My guests today are Jennifer Podemski, Elamaya Tailfeathers, Zoe Lee Hopkins, and Darla Contois, four Indigenous filmmakers behind the television series Little Bird. Let's uh, uh, play another clip, particularly that scene with uh, Darla uh, as Esther, talking about her her love, David. David is my beshert. For all the non-Jews, all one of you, (laughs) he is my destiny, the other half of my soul. I could talk about him for hours. 
But at this engagement party among friends, I want to say my mother, Golden, she had a sister, and her name was Esther. She died in Poland. My mother was 12 when her whole family was So I guess I do feel there is meaning in all of this in a future with David and in a new Jewish generation and in bright shining lives stretching out ahead of us. A prayer and then I'm done. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Darla, uh, you're saying a Hebrew prayer at the end of that clip we just heard. What kind of research did you have to do as an actress in order to play the role of Esther? Um, From the production team, the only thing that was required of me was to work with a dialect coach. So I worked with this gentleman named Howard Rosenstein, who ended up becoming a really close friend of mine through that process. And he really taught me a lot, Um, who was actually born and raised in Montreal as a Jewish man. And um, I actually, on my own accord, did a Jewish crash course at a local synagogue in Winnipeg because I just wanted to have as much information as I possibly could (laughs) before, you know, going in front of the camera and being around all the amazing people on the production team. Mm. Um, What was that like, you know, as an Indigenous person from Mississippistic, taking, you know, learning basically how to be Jewish? Was it alien? Did it feel familiar at all? I think there are a lot of aspects about being a part of the Jewish community that are very similar to being a part of the indigenous community in terms of how important your family is, your language is, your traditions and your culture is. I really felt like it wasn't that alien at all. If anything, I was more nervous that I wasn't going to get the language right than anything Mm. because I was like, oh my goodness, (laughs) I have to speak Hebrew. (laughs) That was like a a little bit terrifying. I mean, all the Jewish people who were a part of the production team and the producers, and nobody seemed like horribly, deathly embarrassed. So I was like, okay, I'm doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer is smiling approvingly, I see. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) she did great. What kind of uh, training and support was required to help Darla take on this role? We did as much as we could. It was COVID. Um, I had really thought that it would be possible to bring Darla to my home and to, um, you know, have Shabbat with us and like see how how it works like in a Jewish native home home, sort of. But that just wasn't possible. So uh, we just did our best. I think her working with Howard was important and Hannah and myself um, working with her on like little tidbits along the way. Uh, We really were up against a lot as a team predominantly it was it was COVID and the barriers that we were facing because of that it compromised so much of our of our days and our what we would normally do so I keep telling people like it is it is truly 
like a wonder of wonders that we have ended up with something, you know, so beautiful and magical and so well put together and executed because we were up against a lot, including like, how do we help Darla, you know, get to where she needs to go. But I think her instincts were just bang on. She worked with Lisa Edelstein on, you know, lots of the smaller, you know, the scenes, scene by scene. So she had a lot of good support. Yeah. Speaking of support, you had a lot of support for all the players in 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 this series from actors to, you know, your production staff to your crew. How would you describe that space, that space that you created around this series? And why was that important for you? Well, in, in my experience, and I'm certain in, in Maya and Zoe's uh, experience, I know Darla has, that was her first television experience, but it's been, there's been so many terrible, terrible things that have happened along the way for for us. And I just, I personally thought it would be very important to bring a trauma therapist on board to help with the emotional, you know, stuff. You know, I think every show that deals with something that's triggering in this industry from a perspective of ethical producing, we should be more mindful of the ways, the, the supports we create for the people who are working in these spaces. So it was just one really little small step towards, you know, creating a safer space. And we would have a medicine tent where, you know, people could access smudging. And I know Darla, maybe she could speak to it more um, because she probably accessed it the most. Darla, do you have some some thoughts you want to share in terms of an actress uh, receiving this care and, you know, being so supported on a set? I think for me, because this is my first television experience, like I thought it was wonderful. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I guess this is what it's like to work in TV. It's just amazing. And you have these loving people around you all day long and people taking care of you. And only through this experience and talking with, you know, Jennifer and Zoe and Amaya and Hannah and everybody learning that this is actually not the norm. I was like, well, that sucks. Like, why is that? Why is that happening? Why is that the norm? And I was like... I think if anything, the entire time I was just really grateful. And I did spend a lot of time with the trauma therapist, like every single day at lunchtime, talking it out and trying to process what was happening. And if anything, just like keeping my mind off of how difficult it was to tell the story. And we would just like literally talk like girls in high school. Like we were like gossiping, like trying to make sense of what was happening between the social dynamics on set, because I was learning this all for the very first time. So if anything, it was a lifesaver to have the trauma therapist on set for me. Mm. Elamaya, what about for you as somebody who, who who directed many of these scenes? Why was it important for you to create safe spaces for people to to buffer off of and be loved in? Well, I think it, it impacts every aspect of the process and and um, the final product that you deliver if if it's done with care and with love and with respect you see it on screen and you feel it every day on set um i've been working in this industry for i think 17 years now and i've had a lot of bad experiences (laughs) i think like a lot of people you know this industry was created by wealthy white men and there's a lot of toxic hierarchy that exists and you know we're seeing it with with the strikes in the US um people are people are saying that the industry isn't working and for me as an indigenous creative I'm I'm blackfoot and I'm sami the industry feels very um 
very much not in line with um, traditional ways of being and traditional ways of relating to community and family and kin. Um, and so in all of the work that I do and in this work as well, in this particular production, it was it was so crucial that we we did our best to try and create a sense of safety on set and that we took um, a trauma informed approach to this work. You know, so many of our crew members were indigenous. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that Jennifer and our producers pushed for that um, to have indigenous people not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera, especially in key technical positions, recognizing that we have a responsibility as leaders to take care of our entire team um, and make sure that they can show up for work every day and feel okay and go home and not take all of that with them. Um, it's, it's so crucial to the process. And I think you see it on screen. We, we, we see our actors feeling safe enough to go to the depths that they go on screen. Like I think about Ellen Jade who played Patty and just the immensely heartbreaking story that she has to portray on screen. And like, she did it with such um, fierce charisma and passion and love. And she couldn't have done that if she didn't feel safe on set. Um, and I think it's so important that we take this trauma informed approach to everything we do as Indigenous creatives when we're telling difficult stories like this. And, you know, Little Bird is kind of setting a precedent in Canada in terms of what is possible when you give Indigenous creatives equitable access to resources. Um, this show is is traveling and doing so well, it's winning awards. A broad audience is is wanting to watch the show. It's resonating with everybody on some level. And, you know, we were we were given access to resources that we normally aren't as Indigenous creatives because there is inequity in this country when it comes to the screen sector and every other sector. Um, and so the fact that we were given not quite enough, but <laughs> just enough to, to create something really remarkable. And now that it's, you know, traveling and selling um, in a way that, you know, the, 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 the people with the money want to see, um, it just proves that like, there's not a lack of talent, there's a lack of opportunity, and there's a lack of equity. So I'm really proud to have been part of something where it's like, give us enough resources, give us enough uh, resources to hire Indigenous creatives and, and, and key talent, and we'll deliver something extraordinary. So I'm just like so proud of, of not only Little Bird itself as a show, but also just the achievement of all of us Indigenous creatives and leaders behind this show um, being able to create something so extraordinary. Mm, absolutely. Um, and I have to say, you know, I cried with Patty every time and cried for her. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, her Esther's adoptive family. What kinds of things were you thinking about uh, Zoe or, and of course, Jennifer, you could probably answer this as well. Uh, what kinds of things were you thinking about as you set out to portray uh, the Jewish community in Montreal during the time of the 60s scoop? Uh, well, for me, it was, uh, uh, when we speak about authenticity, that part was really important to me as well. And, you know, with with the collaboration of my co-creator, Hannah Moscovich, and our incredibly brilliant, um, I would, I call him a dramaturge executive producer, because that's really what he is, Jeremy Podesawa. 
and Christina Fawn, who also is a daughter of two Holocaust survivors. So there was the, you know, myself, Jeremy and Christina all have grand, well, my grandpa, my grandfather is a Holocaust survivor, both Jeremy and, and Christina have Holocaust survivor parents. So from that perspective, it was very important that we told that story in a way that was very authentic and grounded. Um, it was important for me because that was a story I knew how to tell because of my own life experience and the portrayal of the Jewish family. It was very important that it be reflective of the dynamic, specific dynamic that we were trying to achieve, which is the home that Esther comes from is very different from the home, from the homes of the people, you know, that she interacts with in the community. There, there had to be sort of an antagonistic approach to that relationship. So without creating any sort of good or bad, really, we wanted to create dimension and and complexity in the interrelationships between the Jewish families and how Esther herself sort of reckoned with her identity between those families. So it was across the board for me, it was the first, like the first and most authentic thing I've ever done because it, it, I explored very deeply my own realities and my own experiences as, as Jewish and indigenous. Mm-hmm. Zoe, was there anything you wanted to add to that? I just think about uh, directing the dinner scene where Esther is um, experiencing some overt racism from David's family, from her fiance's family. We don't know anything about her family. Why was she given up for adoption? What was the problem there? I think we know what the problem was. I wrote that scene as well as directed it, and um, I was nervous. She's going to be a mother of her own, and that's that's just going to go fine? Look, I think you got one of the good ones. She's a lawyer. I have a cousin who adopted one of them, and he's into the drugs and all that stuff. I was a little bit nervous going into that, so I really... Uh, relied heavily on my collaborators to make sure, you know, that this felt authentic and this felt like, you know, even down to like the pace of the dialogue and how fast it that it had to be, how fast people speak. And um, that part was different uh, to me, like where my dinner table is very slow. It's very quiet. You know, it's, it's, di- it's entirely different. But I had the fantastic and most important support of Nakuset, who was our um, story advisor and a Jewish raised indigenous woman sitting beside me, you know, while I was directing that scene. I remember just looking at her once to check in while that dialogue was happening and, and um, poor Darla was going through it again and again. And um Nakuset just grabbed my arm. She said, Zoe, how did you do this? Like, how did you write this? It's so perfect. And then I just like felt this immense relief, you know, just to have her okay, you know. And I said, well, like all of these things that are being said to Esther in the scene have been said to me in in my life not all at once at one dinner scene and it's kind of like it's a, it's almost flippant you know the way people like they're not even intending to be racist they're just like sloughing off these comments and these are the ways that we experience microaggressions or even just like overt racism mm-hmm. um all of these those things have been said to me in my life um you know she's one of the good ones i've said i've had that said to me multiple times you know and 
it's through my own experience I was able to put all of that together yeah um, I've certainly been also on the receiving end of many of those comments. I've been at that dinner table. Darla, what was it like for you to sit at that dinner table uh, and subsequently in that kitchen where the, your character was the target of such cruelty? I definitely share <clears throat> the same lived experience as most Indigenous people that you hear these comments, you know, offhandedly. And you have this little debate in your mind of do I make a big deal out of this or don't I? How many times am I going to let it happen before I make a big deal out of it? How is this actually affecting me? And it was honestly a little bit um, confusing filming that scene because when I was in the scene and I was performing, I felt so deeply uncomfortable and upset. And then as soon as the director went cut, like everybody at the dinner table was so sweet and so kind. And all of the actors were like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) They were all... um, really really sweet people yeah and i think when i'm in those moments of just feeling uncomfortable and feeling upset i guess that's something that i'm so used to in my work that i was just like oh you know this is what i love to put in front of an audience because it's so terribly true when it comes to being an indigenous person and existing in spaces where you're not exactly welcome Canada. Canada. Well, doesn't it derive from a Gunnigawa? It's village. As Indigenous people, we are used to our stories getting a little twisted. So listen up as we set the record straight. I'm Gunnigawa. Please join me as we hear from dozens of Indigenous people. Together, we will decolonize our words and our minds on the Telling Our Twisted Histories podcast. You can find episodes on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. On today's show, we are talking about Little Bird. It's the first television series to explore the legacy of the 60s scoop. You can find it on APTM Lumi and Crave. I want to bring in uh, Esther's siblings into the conversation because they play uh, a crucial role because they had very different stories than she did. I first want to start with this clip with Leo and Nige and um, Esther meeting. Hi. This is our older brother, Leo. Hi, Nige. Leo. Hi. It's been a while. Uh, Social is trying to figure out which ones were you. Would you like a beer? No, I'm okay, thank you. Would you, would you like to drink with your long lost brother? Yeah. Guys, guys, this is my sister. Now, this scene was really uh, difficult, I guess, for me to watch because I understand as the as the child that wasn't adopted out where Leo is sitting and where what he's feeling. Um, and this is in episode five when Leo and Nish and, and Esther meet, but uh, it doesn't go well between Leo and Nish. They meet in a bar and we find out that Nish drinks and Leo does not. There is clear indication that he's very uncomfortable and, and eventually it leads to some violence. All right, let's go. 
What were you trying to achieve with that dynamic between Leo and Nish in particular? We talked a lot about this in the writers' room about how it was really important that all of the reunions feel different and unique, and that it would feel true and authentic if there was a reunion or more than one that were re- that was really complicated, you know, and that it wouldn't just be a big hug and tears and then a big happy new sibling, you know. Um, I think that growing up in an in a terrible circumstance like Nige did his demons really brush up against uh that of Leo you know and that there would be a jealousy between them that Leo got to stay home and and be amongst the family and was never raised away or taken from their home community he was raised by his grandfather and that Nige felt really angry about not being protected you know and that he um, deserved some kind of protection. Leo comes in to protect Esther from uh, Nisha's like aggression, and you know, and just really feeling the undercurrent and like understanding like the complexity of this new brother that they're both meeting. That he's really, really a complex being, and just seeing that he's just teetering on the brink, you know, and suffering the impact of having lived through the foster care system and having, you know, seen so experienced so much violence in his life, um, that all of that is bubbling just underneath his chest. And, and how could you have a beautiful reunion that's just picture perfect? And also with the sister was a very different reunion. She had a different experience and then Nish had, that, that Esther had. Why did you want to include all of these different sort of experience, include all of those experiences? As Zoe said, it was important to illustrate as much of a variety of experiences as possible to understand that this isn't one, you know, this doesn't look just one way. Everybody experiences it differently, but also uh, we wanted to address a few of the ways that kids that were taken where they went. And there there were a lot of kids that went to the States, for example, a lot of kids that went to work on farms. It's like human trafficking. Our kids, our siblings, our families, our children were being trafficked. And Nisha's story, although we show such a small glimpse of it, like these were much bigger stories at one point. But as you get into the writing, you realize, oh, man, we we can't fit that all in. Right. You have to remember what your story is about. And our story is about Esther. So we did our best to condense these very big experiences, Nish going to live on a farm in the States and the impact that that had on his life. And the fact that, you know, he, his mother didn't, didn't grab him when she ran with Esther. Like there's, there's so many complex realities for each of these kids. And then for, for Dora, how she went into the, you know, she, she was adopted and how that went for her. I, I think at the end of the day, as a storyteller, you know, you're always challenged with what parts of the story not to tell, but still make it the most impactful, filtered down, distilled version of an experience that delves as deep as you can into a character's, you know, experience or psyche without pulling focus from the actual story, which is in this case, Esther's story. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, I think we did do a good job of pulling together the right moments. It was very, very difficult. It was very difficult because you make a lot of, yeah. you have a lot of losses in the writer's room. 
not in the room, but afterwards and up until the day. And I mean, both Maya and Zoe can tell you that there were some pretty upsetting moments when, you know, I personally had to tell them they had to pull something because there's just so little time to get things done. And you have to think like, what is going to impact this story in the most important way? And what can we lose? Mm. So, but these characters were so real for us. These are people that we care about. These are our own family members. So losing them in the process of storytelling, it's hard to determine what is what is real life and what is not. So when you lose a part of someone's story, you, you feel like you're losing a part of your own story. Where was your mother while all of this was happening, dear? Hmm? You don't know where she was? Huh? Elamaya, one of the most heart-wrenching scenes and the one I dreaded uh, witnessing was when the children are actually apprehended by the social workers. Describe that moment for us, please. Well, when I when I first read the script, it was a different version of the pilot, and that happened earlier on in the story. And I was in tears, and my heart was racing, and I was just taken on that first page, you know? Like, I, I knew that I needed to be a part of this because of the way that that particular scene was written. Um, it adds such depth and humanity to Patty, the mother who, who lost her children in such a violent way. Um, and it was so important for, for me as the director, but for everyone involved that we honor her humanity and that we have audiences feel that loss in in in, a, in the profound way that she feels it, um, and so that was done by ensuring that we stayed with her perspective throughout. That we really feel that experience from Patty's perspective, um, and a great deal of care and thought and choreography uh, was done in order to be able to achieve that. Like I really need to. Um, give props to our stunt coordinator, Kristen Swatsky here in, uh, who lives in Winnipeg. She just took such great care in thinking about how we could achieve what myself and Guy Godfrey, the cinematographer for Eps 1 through 3, wanted to achieve, which was this continuous take from multiple um, perspectives or from, <laughs> from multiple angles um, from Patty's perspective largely. Um, and that involved a great deal of choreography and thought in terms of the actual stunts that that were required. And then, of course, Ellen Jade, who played Patty and our beautiful children, who we had, you know, took great care in terms of making sure that we weren't doing harm to them by putting them through this really complicated experience. It, yeah, it took a lot of thought and, and a lot of difficult conversations. And ultimately, I think we achieved what we had hoped to achieve, which was honoring Patty's humanity, honoring that loss and, and the gravity of that loss that we feel throughout the series. Because so often, you know, Indigenous people in this country are not recognized as human beings. Our humanity is not recognized. And we wanted to achieve that throughout with all of our characters, but in particular, that moment and, and really being able to see Patty's humanity as, as a mother and as an Indigenous woman in this really difficult time in, in, in our country's history. 
You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. My guests today are Jennifer Pademski, Ella Maya Tailfeathers, Zoe Lee Hopkins, and Darla Contois. They are the four women behind the television series, Little Bird. One of the things that I, I, I admire most about this series and the production of it is just how... Uh, you've held each other up, how you've held each other close and take, taken care of each other. How much of that has to do with the fact that you are Indigenous, that you are women, and that you have been in this hard, crusty kind of industry, uh, surviving in there for so long? Zoe, maybe we want to start with you on that one. Sure. Um, I always thought that I would have my first television directing gig on a show that I created myself because I never imagined that the industry would let me in um, and be able to helm a TV series unless I built that myself. And I thought that that's I thought that because I've um, made my way in independent film, making short films and two feature films, I just never imagined the world would open up, you know, and allow me to be at the helm of a show like this, unless I built it. And so lo and behold, I was able to helm this show, because somebody just like me, you know, gave me this opportunity. And Jennifer Podemski fought for Elmaya and I to be at the helm of this show, and invited us into this space, but, you know, really broke down the door and removed the barriers for us to be able to direct on this series without, you know, a quote-unquote, you know, senior uh, director to hold our hand, you know, or, you know, and usually that means, that's usually code for a white man, you know. Um, And like Elmaya said, um, it's, you know, give us some resources and then watch us, watch what we can do. I think that we always had a, had this in us, but we were never given the resources, either human or financial, to be able to tell a story this big on this grand scale um, in this um, premium quality before, you know, you know, I've made um, things for such a the fraction of a budget, the budget before. And so having had somebody fight for me to be in this space, you know, it's really, really such a different experience to to be um, welcomed and assured and told every day, you know, oh, this is this is so beautiful. You're so talented and like, go, go, go. Um, I think that we knew we were doing something that nobody had done before and taking on this story was so important it had to be done so right you know and the only way to do that was to support one another and I think that nobody will support you better or stronger than women like you like me you know like it was a sisterhood for sure you're all just a bunch of aunties (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Darla, uh, I got to say, you know, your character uh, of Esther really carried me through when I wanted to stop watching. I looked to you, to your character, to to the strength, the tenacity, 
uh, the smarts, the wisdom, all of these things sort of you held my hand through the whole series. Where did you get this strength from? Where did, what were you, who were you thinking about as you were playing the role? I feel like um, it's a really difficult question to answer. Um, because I have, you know, personal experience with the 60 scoop as well in my family. So I was definitely carrying that with me the whole time. And if I was thinking about anything, it was that my own personal experience and no matter how much difficulty I was facing in being able to tell the story, you know, as Elmaya and Zoe will tell you, like there were moments where I thought I couldn't do it my own self, that I reminded myself that, you know, this journey that we're on is bigger than me. You know, telling this story is bigger than me. Telling this story with these people is bigger, I think, than an individual experience. It's about collectively moving forward in a different way. And I think that I just reminded myself over and over again how important that was. And regardless of sometimes my own personal feelings getting in the way just reminding myself of that over and over and over and thinking about, you know, the children that didn't survive and the children that to this day, you know, still come up to me and say, thank you so much for doing this. Like, I feel connected to you. And I feel like I have people telling me very, very personal stories. And I'm just so thankful that they feel seen in a way that I was able to contribute to that. Okay, so this is a question for for all, and we'll start with Jennifer first. What do you hope people um, carry with them and take away after they watch this series? Um, I guess at the beginning, like when the like I locked, let's say the last episode and watched it and sent it off. I just my only thing was like, I hope people like it. That was really the most. That was all I thought. But after receiving like dms on my instagram and handwritten letters and i know that everybody's receiving their own you know overwhelming response i now know that the hope and desire is much bigger it's more about i hope that it builds so much conscious awareness within people that it impacts the way they live their everyday life and maybe instead of ignoring us, ignoring the things that they see or hear or read, they uphold the memory of this story and use it to make change in their everyday life, you know, whether they're doctors or lawyers or educators, any in any space, bank tellers, like every single space to use the memory of this family and these experiences and to understand that each person can make an impact in building a better reality for everybody. Alamaya, what about for you? I hope that uh, 60s Scoop survivors feel uh, seen and heard. And I hope that non-Indigenous Canadians watch this show and see our humanity as Indigenous people um, and so I, I just want people to walk away with the understanding that we are human beings and we are deserving of dignity and love and respect. And I want them to be able to see the joy and the love and the hope that exists within our families and to see our strength and our resilience. Yeah, I hope that this show continues to move the dialogue in the right direction in this country because there's still so much work to do. 
and Zoe. I hope that people watch this series and feel inspired to learn more about the history of colonial violence in this country. Um, I know that the vast majority of people I talk to, whether they were people who worked on the crew or people who work on other crews that I've worked on since Little Bird, most people have not heard of the 60s scoop, you know, and, and let alone understand the the gravity of the repercussions of that era, as Almaya says, is ongoing. You know, it is still happening. And my hope is that people come to a better understanding of where we're at in this country in terms of the relationship between our government and Indigenous people. I think that people faced a bit of a reckoning when first learning about residential schools and the bodies that have been found at schools. That's just the tip of the iceberg, you know, and we're still learning more as a as a country about how our people are treated um, day in and day out, but also historically. And so I hope that people um, take it upon themselves to learn, you know, basic things like what, what people's land are you standing on? You know, can you even say hello in our languages in the, in the territory where you live? I would love for people to just feel inspired to educate themselves. And that begins with, uh, individuals. It doesn't begin with the government. It begins with each of us looking around and going, Oh, wow, this happened. I had no idea. What else do I not know? and just learning a little more. And I hope that people also just feel inspired to watch more of our work and and recognize the incredible amount of talent there is behind the camera um, and in front of the camera and just see so much amazing work is coming out. I hope people feel just inspired to look at more. Zoe, Elamaya, Darla, and Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Jennifer Podemski is the creator of Little Bird. She is Soto, Ojibwe, and Jewish. Elamaya Tailfeathers and Zoe Lee Hopkins are the series' directors. Elamaya is Blackfoot and Sammy from the Kainai First Nation. Zoe is Helstook from Bella Bella and Mohawk from Six Nations. And Darla Contois is an actress. She is Cree Soto from Mispaistic Cree Nation. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. Our show is produced by Kim Kasher, Laura Bone-Steubing, Rhiannon Johnson, Zoe Tennant, and Aisha Smith-Belgaba. Find us on our website at cbc.ca slash unreserved or download the podcast on the CBC Listen app. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Genaskanamitnawa, I can say... For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.